0: Well, it is good uh, good to be with you guys again. I always enjoy worshiping with you, your energy, your, your passion. I, I, I love this group, and I love what God is doing with you and among you, and um, it's just exciting. It's exciting to be here and see what's going on. It's exciting to see how… Uh, God is using Matt and his ministry here, and uh, it's fun to be a part of it. I know Matt's extended this invitation before, uh, but I just want to just keep this—it's an open invitation, and I I get to see a lot of your faces on Sunday morning across the way in our worship center at 1030, Uh, but if you've never been there, you ought to check it out. Um, UCC, the church here, loves college students. Uh, we love college students, we, we love young professionals, and I think you'd be uh, really welcome there. It's a safe place, it's a real place, it's an authentic place. Um, not only do we love college students and young professionals, but we are rapidly becoming a church of college students and young professionals, uh, so that's kind of fun as well. So, 1030 Sundays, if, if you want to give it a try, uh, I, think it, I think you'd be blessed uh, by being there and, and connecting with some of our other folks who you may not yet know. So Matt, this semester, is kind of focusing on this idea of foundations, right? Laying a foundation of our faith, laying a foundation of what it means to follow Jesus. So he's kicked off, you know, here February, the Valentine's Day month. Uh, we starting talking about sex, right? We're going to talk about sex and God's design for sex and God's intent for sex. So we started that last week. And whether you're a Christian or not, I think we can all admit that there's sexual brokenness in the world. At some point, we're going to say, no, that's broken. That's not right. And we kind of walked through a little bit of that last week. So last week, I identified what I think is really a twofold problem uh, with sex in, in the American culture today. And, and let me just rehash that real quick. The first is an oversaturation of wrong sex. You're bombarded with thousands of images a day, and almost every one of those images is a wrong view of sex, right? And that's culture's depiction. So that's part of the problem. The other part is an undereducation of right sex. And as a Christian, as a pastor, I believe that God defines what right sex is, right? So that, that's kind of that's where I am coming from. And as a Jesus follower, I believe, I truly believe, that all sexual brokenness would be healed if all of us lived within God's design for sex. I really do believe that, that it would heal the problems in, in our lives, that it would heal the problems on this world, that it would heal the sexual brokenness. And so that's what we're trying to do this, you know, this month. We're trying to unpack the idea, what is God's design for sex? Because if you're a Christ follower, if you are here and you've given your life to Jesus, then what you've said is, look, I'm submitting my life to what you say even when it's difficult. Right, so we want to know what God's design is for sex because that's what we're called to live. Now, if you're not a Christian, I think it's, it's good for you to hear because I believe, even if you don't believe in these convictions about Jesus, that he's the son of God, that he died and came back to life, that even if you lived within God's design for sex, you would be better, your relationships would be better, and in, in the long run, your marriage would be better. I really believe that. All right, so last week we unpacked the idea that God created sex. And he created it to be good, he created it to be fun, he created it to be enjoyed. It is a good gift from God. But that being said, if God created sex, then God knows how to have the best sex. Right? He designed for it to function a certain way, and he knows what functions best when it comes to sex and sexuality. Okay, so this week I'm going to unpack what exactly is God's design for sex and the sexual relationship. We want to look at that. In order to start that, we need to look at the idea of a Jewish wedding. Because honestly, weddings are very cultural, right? You, you go to some countries, they arrange marriages, you know, which would freak us out here in the United States, right? You go to other places, you still have to pay a dowry for the wife, like you got to give 25 cows, you know, to get a bride. I mean, that still goes on. Here in the United States, we get to pick who we marry, you know, and there's expectations that we have. Now, as Christians, we believe that God, the the Christian God, first revealed himself to the world through Israel, right? Through the people of Israel. So we've got to understand a little bit of the Jewish wedding ceremony in order to understand God's design for the sexual relationship, so in a Jewish wedding, the bride and the groom during the ceremony would come up and they would stand under what's called a chupa. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right because I don't speak Hebrew or Aramaic. But there was like a, it was a giant kind of a sheet that they would have attached to four different poles. And then different family members would hold these poles. And the, and the couple, the, the bride and the groom, would stand under this chupa and they would make their vows. And that sheet represented the presence of God. And it dated back to when Israel wandered through the desert. Because back in those days, they didn't have, you know, they didn't have, you know, Moses couldn't say, hey, uh, direction, hey, Siri, directions to the promised land and figure out how to get there, right? Back in those days, there was a cloud by day that showed them where to go and there was a pillar of fire by night that showed them where to go. That was their divine GPS system. And it represented, they believed that was a presence of God. And so this chupa, this tent over the bride and the groom represented the presence of God. So they made their vows literally, right? Literally under the presence of God. And then after that, they would go and they would sign what's called the ketubah. And the ketubah is kind of like a legal document. And it kind of outlined the expectations. The expectations for the husbands, the expectations for the wives, you know. And they would sign there. But even after signing this document they still weren't married. Even though they made the vows, even though they you know, signed the document, they, they still weren't married. At that point, they went into a tent. And over the tent, they took this, the, the, the chupa and they put it over the tent. And they went into the tent and they had sexual intercourse. While well, all the wedding guests are outside. Not right around the tent, but they're outside, probably starting the festivities. And when they have sexual intercourse, that's when they're married. And then they come out and everyone's like, Woo-hoo! and they start like a week-long party. That's how it happened, right? So, and so here's what Rob Bell, in, in, a, in his book on, on sex and God, and he's, here's what he says. Sex in the ancient world, right, was marriage. If you had sex, you were married. And that helps explain some of these, these Old Testament laws that you see that sound weird sometimes. Here's an Old Testament law. This comes from a book called Exodus. It says this. If a man seduces a virgin... Who is not pledged to be married and sleeps with her, he must pay the bride price and she shall be his wife. What? So if he sleeps with a girl, he's got to marry her? Why? Because sex is marriage. Because in that culture, if you had sex with somebody, that was what it, that was marriage. They were synonymous. And you can trace that back to the very beginning. Right? When God creates Adam and when God creates Eve, right? He creates them and you know, he's, you know, he's got them and he's, he's given them this whole place to take care of. And then he says this, at the end of chapter 2, it says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Listen to the language. And be united to his wife, and the two will become flesh. That's both metaphorical, and that's both literal, physical, right? So he's saying a man and a woman, when when they get married, when they make that covenant of marriage, what happens is the two become one, Right? There's no longer two separate entities, they are one entity. Somebody told me once, you stop thinking in me's and you start thinking in we's, right? You are part of something beyond just yourself. But it's actually physical as well. Right? When he talks about being united with your wife, he's talking about intercourse. And if you think about it, a man and a woman cannot be any closer physically than, than during the act of intercourse. You are actually inside of each other. Right? That's as close as you can get. You become one. So marriage and sex from the beginning have been designed to be the same thing. So we're thinking about that. Um, here, here's what we would, here's what I think we have to understand first. Sex is marriage. Sex is marriage. Now let me, now let me briefly explain why. Because sex is ultimately not a physical act. It's ultimately not a physical act. As human beings, God designed us for connection, for belonging right, for community, for relationship. That's how we are designed. Sex is a means of connecting relationally. That's really what it is. It's a means of connecting. There's a thousand different ways we connect with human beings, right? I mean, there's, there's a thousand different ways to love. There's a thousand different ways to give of ourselves. Sex is one of those, right? It's one of the ways that we can give of ourselves. It's one of the ways of connecting with another human being, And so it's not just a physical act of sleeping together. That's not the point of sex, right? It can be used, I mean, yeah, to populate the world. Yes, there is a physical act involved, but ultimately it's relational. It's relational. The purpose of sex is to listen, to connect, to belong, and to give, never to use. Listen to that. The purpose of sex is to listen, to belong, to connect, not to use. So I would say this sex is not an act but a relationship sex is not an act but a relationship the point is to connect to another person that's why when sex occurs in void of relationship it simply becomes an act it's just an act right and here's the problem with that objects are meant to be used people are meant to be loved and when there's no relationship we're using people And if we're using people, we're turning them into an object. And if we're turning them into an object, then we're stripping them of what is fundamental of our humanity. And that's what we call the imago Dei, the image of God. That's what separates us from the rest of the animal world. The image of God is within us. And when we use somebody only to gratify our desires, we're using them as an object. And when we do that, we strip them of what is fundamental, what is given them by God in every human being that is worthy of our respect, and that is their image of God the imago day, And that's what happens when sex is void of relationship. We turn sex into dog sex. That sounds kind of weird, yeah. Like I have a dog, his name is Tux. He's a smart dog, but a smart dog is dumber than a dumb human, okay? I mean, he's still pretty dumb. He's he's a smart dog. I let him out in the morning to go pee. And like a minute later, i just seen him, right? I let him out a minute later. He's coming back in, and he acts like he hasn't seen me in a week. (laughs) That's kind of how I interpret his brain, you know? It's good to see you. good to see you. good to see you. Like, he's like, you just saw me. Like, no human does that, right? I don't go to the bathroom and then come out and see my wife. I'm like, (laughs) it's good to see you, right? But he does. He likes to stick his nose in poop and see how it smells. In other words, I don't take a lot of life cues from a dog, right? I don't use him to kind of give me life cues, especially when it comes to sex and sexuality, right? Because for a dog, it's, in, it's an instinct. For a dog, it's an act. That's all it is. When I lived in Brazil, um, there, they didn't spay and neuter animals, so you had a lot of like neighborhood dogs, and when a female dog in the neighborhood would, would go into heat, they would lose their freaking minds. Like the dogs would go crazy. And we took care of a dog one time. His name was Sweet Pea. We took care of him for about a year. And when a a female dog within like a mile radius would go into heat, we'd have to chain him up. Because we had these bars on the gates that are about that wide. And if a female, he never got out of the yard. But if a female dog was in heat, he would squeeze through those bars to get out. So we put crossbars on them and created a space about that big. He squeezed through that space. I saw him, he'd get his head up and squeeze through. I mean, he had to get out, right? And so we put like chicken wire about two feet up. And he's not going to squeeze through chicken wire, but he got out. He would jump the two feet and then like a seesaw, right, squeeze through the bars, like, and like falling. And he like he's lost his ever-loving mind, right? And he had one thing on his mind, right? He wasn't going to run to the jewelry store and get a ring and propose to this dog right? I mean, that wasn't his intent. His intent wasn't, you know, I I need to give of myself, and you know, I need to be romantic. No, his thing was to stick something somewhere. That's all that was, I mean, that's it, right? That's all that was on his mind. It was an act. It was an instinct, and when we we separate sex from relationship, that's what we're doing, right? We're stripping us of what makes us different. We're stripping people, you're stripping yourself of your humanity, even worse, you're stripping the other person of their humanity, right? Sex is relationship. Okay, so maybe you're with me so far. And you're like, okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, sex should be take, have within the confines of relationships. So no prostitution, no orgies, no one night stands, no you know, yeah, no casual sex. That that could be destructive. I see that. I see that. But my girlfriend and I, or my boyfriend and I, you know, we we've been dating two weeks now. We're in a relationship, right? <laughs> Okay, we've been 82 years. Now, we're, we're in a relationship, right? Yes, but God defines a certain kind of relationship. So I'm going to go back to 1 Corinthians. We, we were there a little bit last week. Um, again, Paul is a, a Christian in the first century, and he went around the Mediterranean starting a lot of churches. And some of the church, he started a lot of these churches, and he had to leave. So he left a lot of really immature, ignorant churches. So he'd spend a lot of time corresponding with them, writing letters back and forth to continue to teach and explain to them. And they got a, a lot of them just got a lot of weird ideas. The Corinthian church had a lot of problems. One problem, like we said last week, was they took some Greek philosophy, they took some ideas about the Spirit of God, and they combined them and came up with the idea that all matter, all physicality is evil and wrong and meaningless. Because in the end, all that truly is is what is Spirit, And so some folks, like we talked about last week, were like, well, if the matter, if the physical doesn't matter, they went off and had sex with prostitutes, right? Because it doesn't matter. Now, there was another group of people within the same church who were like, okay, if the matter is ultimately meaningless and spirit is all that matters, then we need to be spiritual only now. And so there were couples who were married who stopped having sex because sex was physical and that must be bad. And there were even some of these couples who, these married couples who were splitting apart and divorcing, right? Because if sex is marriage and we're not having sex, then let's not be married. They were leaving their spouses, right? Because matter is wrong and matter is bad. So Paul writes in, in, to fix this idea. This comes from chapter 7. He says, now for the matters you wrote about, Right? So he's about to quote what they've written to him in a letter. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's what they said. And Paul's like, mm. but since sexual immorality is occurring, right? people are having wrong sex everywhere, each man should have sexual relations with his wife and each woman with her husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. It's a tough job, right? But you, you got to do it. And likewise, the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have the authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sex, except perhaps by mutual consent for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together to have sex, again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. Listen to what he says here. I wish all of you were as I am. But each one, in other words, not married, not having sex. But each of you has your own gift from God. Celibacy is a gift. One has this gift, another has that. Then he says this, now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. Right? That's clearly what he thinks is best. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Right? So there's a couple things we learn here about the relationship in which God designed for sex to happen. One is this. First, married couples should have sex. They should have sex. God designed it to be good. He designed it to take place. And I will tell you this. A healthy marriage has a good sexual relationship. If a couple comes to me and they're having trouble in their sexual life, that tells me that's a symptom that there's other issues involved, Right? There's either, there's either unresolved issues, there's tension, there's unforgiveness, there's bitterness. There's something going on that is affecting, because a healthy sexual relationship is a sign of a healthy relationship. Married couples should be having sex. So there may be some of you who grew up, you know, your parents are like, don't have sex, don't have sex, don't have sex, because they want to just save yourself from marriage. And now maybe you're married, right? Maybe you're, you're married and you're, you're like, ah, oh, this is bad, because that's what you've been told your whole life. It's not. It's meant to be enjoyed. There's no shame, there's no guilt in married sex. That's how God designed it. Married couples should be having sex. Paul says when you get married, you're submitting. Like when you make those vows and you say, I commit myself to you, you're not just committing your emotion, you're not just committing your time, you're not just committing your purity. You're committing your body to that person. He says you yield, right? You yield, which means you give the other person the right away. You yield your body to that person. It's no longer just mine. That is a great act of vulnerability, Right? To say, hey, I'm yielding my body to you. I'm committing even my, my physicality to you. Why would we do that? Why would we do that with someone who isn't committed to us long-term? in a marriage? Why would we do that? Why would we give them our body? Right? So that's the first thing. The second thing is this. God designed sex for the marital relationship. Look back at verses 8 and 9. Now to the unmarried and the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul doesn't say, look, single ladies, if you're having a hard time, right, <laughs> with that sexual drive, just find a guy, he'll take care of that for you. He doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't say, you can get online, there's a lot of other sex starved people online, you can find somebody and satisfy that desire. No, he says, look, yeah, that desire is natural, but here's a place where you're supposed to satisfy that desire. That's the marital relationship. That's the marital relationship. Right, yes, God has given us sexual desire. That is from God. That is a good thing. That is a natural thing. Guys, the fact that you think about sex all the time, that is, that is from God. I have a question about that because that's really challenging when I get uh, God, really? Like, I get you gave us that desire, but that is awfully strong, right? I do think our sexual desire is a little bit on steroids because of the world we live in. You know, we've got a lot of bombardment about sex is like the most important thing in life. If you're a virgin, like, please, Jesus, don't come back until I get married and get to have sex, right? I mean, that's how we think. Or if I don't have sex, the world's going to come to an end. I mean, we think that way. But it's a little exploited. but the desire is natural. It's given from God. It's a good desire, right? God gives good things. I remember being six years old, six years old. I was in Brazil, I was in a bookstore, and I came across a book on sexual positions, photographs. Like, I'm six, I don't have a clue about anything. I opened it up, I was like, well, yeah, okay. <laughs> like, how did I know that that was good, Right? Because that instinct is natural. That desire is from God. There's nothing wrong with that desire. Yes, God has given us sexual desires at the same time. God has given us an avenue in which to fulfill and satisfy those desires. And that is marriage. And that is marriage. It is a marital relationship. Why? Because marriage is a covenant relationship. We don't use that word anymore. That's a weird word. It's a churchy word. It's it's kind of a Bible word. Covenant. Covenant is this. Covenant is when I commit to you, not to what you do for me, not to what you're going to give me in the relationship, not to whether you're faithful to me or not. When I enter a covenant with you, I am committing to you in spite of who you are or what you do. I'm committed to you. That's a covenant. In marriage, it's two people standing before each other saying, "I commit to you, not what you do for me. I'm committed to you." That's why sex is intended for the marital relationship. Because when you date, what you're trying to figure out is, is this a person who's going to commit to me? And is this a person I can commit to? Is this a person I can actually be in covenant with? That's what you're trying to figure out when you're dating. So dating, there's always an out. Marriage is not really supposed to be an out. Now, we've made it that way. But when you enter a covenant, it's like, I'm committed to you, hell or high water, it doesn't matter. I'm committed to you as a person, not what you do. That's the difference. Right? So, so dating is selfish in some respects. Marriage is supposed to be completely selfless. It's a covenant. You're committed to that person. Now, here, now think about that. The most vulnerable you can be before another human being, right, is when you're having sexual intercourse. You're naked emotionally and you're naked physically. That's an extremely vulnerable place to be. And here's the beauty of the marriage relationship. If you know that that person that you're having sex with is in a covenant with you, that they are committed to you in spite of whatever happens, there's no fear. There's no fear of being rejected. There's no fear of performance, right? There's no fear of frustration or anger because you know that person is committed to you. That creates a beautiful sexual relationship. And that's why the best sex is married sex. And you may say, well, recreational sex is pretty fun. Yes, it is. Right? Otherwise, it wouldn't be so popular. Right? Sex outside of marriage can be pretty enjoyable too. Yes, it can. But ultimately, those are destructive. And you know that, right? If you've had multiple partners, there's probably at least one of those you're like, I regret that. Or maybe if it's even one, you're like, I regret that. There's disease, there's unwanted pregnancies, there's abortions, there's shame. There's people who try to find their self-worth by pursuing sexual relationships and end up feeling worse about themselves. All kinds of brokenness that comes out of that. And you may be hearing like, you know, no, I'm really enjoying my sexual freedom right now, and I, don't, I haven't had any destruction or negative consequence. Maybe you haven't, but maybe one of those three partners is suffering because of that, or maybe all three of them. So maybe you're not feeling the destruction, but maybe somebody else is, because God designed it to function a certain way, and when we step out of that, it becomes destructive. It becomes destructive. Now, as a Christian, if you're here and you're a Christian, what we've said is we're going to trust God more than our instinct, right? Our instinct may be to sleep wherever with whoever, we're going to say, you know what? God knows best, and I'm going to trust him, and I'm going to submit to his way because I believe he knows what he's talking about. Now, if you're not a Christian, you haven't submitted to Jesus, but I still t- I still believe if you lived out this design that God has, sex for a marriage covenant relationship, you're going to be better. Your sex life's going to be better. The, your, your spouse is going to be better. The people you're in a relationship with are going to be better. I really believe that. So, so here's what I want to do in the last, last part of this, this message. is I want to just talk about—now, if, if, if you don't buy into this, you're going to think this is silly, what I'm about to do. But if you do, if you say, okay, I really do want to kind of lean into what God is calling us to and His design for sex, I'm going to give you just some practical things you can do to help protect yourself until you're ready for that marriage relationship, for that marriage covenant. Okay. The first thing is this. This, this is a truth about relationships. Time and proximity equal intimacy. Time plus proximity equal intimacy. The more time you spend together and the closer you are geographically, the more rapidly you will grow in intimacy. If, you, if one of you lives in Portland and one of you lives in Phoenix and you talk to each other for three hours every night, you're going to become intimate based on what you share and to know each other. Now, if you had those same three-hour conversations face-to-face, or you can hold hands, or you can look at each other's eyes, you're going to reach that level of intimacy much quicker. When I was in high school, my parents had a rule, if I had a girlfriend, which was not very often. Um, but, and that was this. You, you can go on one date with your girlfriend per week by yourself. Out. The other one, either she can come to the house while we're here, or you can go on a group date. Because they knew this, Right? They knew I needed to limit my time. During the week, she couldn't come over. I couldn't go over. No, I could see her at school. I mean, that's kind of how it went because they knew, right, time plus proximity equals intimacy, and intimacy leads to sex. So they know that. Now, you're in college, right? You've you've got some freedom, right? Nobody's going to set those boundaries for you. You have to set them for yourself. So if you're serious about it, it means you go into relationships knowing this. The more time we spend together and the closer we are when we spend that time together, the more rapidly that intimacy is going to grow. And you've got to protect yourself. So that's just a rule, uh, or just, just kind of a relationship truth. The second is this. Being alone is always more dangerous. Netflix and chill, right? Is that the right way? That came about for a reason, right? If, if your favorite thing to do with your boyfriend or your girlfriend is to cuddle on the couch and watch movies... It's only a matter of time. Unless you've got superpowers, right? It's always more dangerous. So what do you do with that? Well, you, when you spend time together, go out in public. That's a little more challenging, right? Or you go out with a group, or you invite people over. I mean, that's, that's how you do it. You're like, oh man, that how, I'm just telling you the reality. Because the reality is, as you increase in the physical relationship, it's very hard to go back. Once you hold hands, it's hard not to hold hands anymore. Once you kiss, it's hard to just hold hands. You know what I mean? And then it goes from there. Right? It goes from there. So that's just, that's just something to be aware of. The other is just be aware of turn-ons. Now, I'm going to generalize here. There's always exceptions to the rule, but I'm going to generalize men and women. Men primarily, the majority of men primarily, are sexually aroused by sight. Okay? By sight. More than touch, more than, it's sight. That's why men have a, a harder challenge with pornography. That's why women sometimes don't even understand pornography because they're not aroused that way. Like a man is aroused by sight like that. I heard, of, I heard a guy say once, men, when it comes to sexual arousal, men are like microwaves, 30 seconds. Women are like crock pots, right? <laughs> Like cook all day, you know what I'm mean? saying? So now think about that though, think about that, right? If men are primarily aroused sexually and quickly by sight, it's like that. So listen, ultimately, it's a guy's responsibility to control what he does with his eyes. Ultimately, it's a guy's responsibility to control how he filters what his eyes sees and what he does with that in his mind. That's our responsibility, guys. That's our responsibility. But girls, you can't help your boyfriends out. Okay? If your boobs are always hanging out and your butt's always hanging out, Here's what I guarantee you your boyfriend isn't thinking. Well, that's a cute outfit. He's not thinking, that's just like the one I saw on Pinterest. All he's thinking is, I can go right now. That's the truth. And physically, that's how it works. He's ready to go like that. And you may have never thought about it that way, but that's just how it works. You may think, oh, he thinks I'm cute. No, that's not what he's thinking. You can help him out. So be aware of those triggers. Gr- girls tend to be, again, I'm generalizing, tend to be sexually aroused by intimacy, right? Tend to be ar- like nice notes, cuddling, foot rubs you know, thoughtful actions, right? Those things are really hard to do, guys. I mean, those are the things, right? Romance, flowers, you know, unexpected, you know, little gifts or whatever. Those are the kinds of things that that breed, that's why sometimes it takes a while because those things stack up over time and then then a girl will get sexually aroused. That's how it works. Honestly, guys, you're more turned on by your pecs than your your girlfriend is, all right? So don't put so much effort into it. The famous words of Mama T, my mom, she said, you know what, honestly, the naked male body is just unattractive. That's from my mom, right? Thank you, mom. Thank you for that. So, right, so here's the thing, guys. If you know that, right, if you're aware of that, if you're aware of that and you've been like, man, just kill a romance guy for a week and you're on this Friday date, you better end that date at her apartment door and not in her apartment because you're aware, right? You've been killing it all week with the romance, right, with the intimacy, all those affectionate things, you end that date at the door. That makes sense. So being aware of the turn-ons is important. Finally, end it. If you're here tonight and you're in a relationship that is only physically based, end it because that's where it's going to go. Chemistry cannot sustain a relationship. A sexual relationship cannot sustain a relationship. It is the outgrowth of a healthy relationship. And if all your relationship is right now is a physical relationship, it won't last. Even if you get married, it's not going to last. It's not going to last. Because here's what happens. Varicose veins happen. Balding happens. (laughs) Right? Back hair happens. Stretch marks happen. Smelly farts happen. I'm just telling you how it is. Chemistry is not going to keep those couples together those people have been married 60 years, it's not chemistry. It's something greater. It's a covenant, right? It's a covenant. So if your relationship right now is purely based on just a sexual, physical relationship, end it. End it because that's where it's headed. That's where it's headed. That's not sustainable. So again, if you're a Christian, it's all we're called to, because God is right. You know that's that's what we believe. We believe he knows what he's talking about. We believe Jesus knows what he's talking about. If you're not a Christian, I invite you. Try it out. Try it out. I think you'll discover the beauty that God really is. He really knows what he's doing. Life really is better. Not always easier, but better. But better. Anytime you talk about sexual brokenness, there's probably shame and guilt in the room, right? So many of us have been there. Right? I've been there. And um, sometimes it's just hard. You just, you, you leave feeling. Hey, wow, so I want to end, I want to end with hope again. I want to end with really what, what this is about. Not about shame. You should never leave here feeling shameful, ever. If you have, we've done a poor job. Right? Jesus this is, is good, news. good news. That's what gospel means. It's good news. You should always leave here knowing the good news. So here's something real, real, <clears> this <throat> off. Here's something real practical. Susie, come up here. This is Susie uh, Newton. If you, are, if you are a college, you know, young, college-age girl, Susie loves you. You may not have met her, but I guarantee she loves you. She has a passion for women your age. She has a, a passion for serving and mentoring and helping. And she's starting a, a book study. And here's what it says. This is a little flyer that every girl's going to receive. That way you don't have to feel weird about whether you want to get one or not. Like we're not going to make you raise your hand and get one. Like every girl will get one on the way out. Here's what it says. An intimate, confidential, small group setting dealing with the struggles of shame. Primarily with sexual shame. Um, And it's got Susie's in Contact Susie for details. She's going to be at the back with these along with um, an intern or somebody helping pass these out. I just wanted you to see her. And this would be a great opportunity for you. The book's name is What Are You Waiting For? That's what you'll be working through. So thanks, Susie. Um, so look for her and make sure you get one of these. Even if like, you're like, ah, it's not me. Maybe you have a friend or somebody, this would be really helpful for Just make sure you get one on your way out and talk to Susie as well. So I end with this. One of the greatest, one of, there's, every story about Jesus is pretty good, but there's this story in the Gospel of John. Jesus is, and again, Let me just say this thing with Susie is a real practical way to live out what we've been talking about. So I encourage you. I really encourage you, ladies, if that's something that's speaking to you, do it. I guarantee you'll be blessed by it. Um, Jesus is out in the temple, which is like being temple court, which is like being in the mall on a uh, Saturday afternoon around Christmas,? It's okay? so, like it's packed out. There's people everywhere. Some of the religious leaders catch a woman in the act of adultery. Right? So, so she's in the middle of things going on. They grab her, probably drag her from the bed, They drag her out into the middle of the temple courts, right, Where all these people are around, who knows if she's clothed or not, or halfway clothed or whatever, they drag her out and they bring her before Jesus,? Right? They're using her to test Jesus. Or you talk about shame, right? You talk about fear. You talk about humiliation, right? She's busted. She's caught red-handed, right? And so Jesus is out there, and these guys are like, Jesus, look, we caught her. We caught her. And you know what Moses says we're supposed to do to adulterers? We're supposed to stone them. What do you think we should do? And they start picking up rocks because they're ready to go get to work. And here's this lady, right? And so Jesus just bends down and starts writing in the ground or drawing in the ground or whatever. And he kind of looks up and goes, Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Whoever doesn't have any sin in their life, you get to go first. And one by one, they drop the rocks. I says kind of from the oldest to the youngest, right? The oldest definitely aware. I'm jacked up too. And they all leave. So all that's left now is Jesus and this woman. This woman is guilty, right? Her sexual brokenness has been on display for everybody to see. She can't hide it anymore. Her shame is in front of everybody. And here's Jesus, the only one there who has the right to pick up a stone and throw it at her. Right, John, at the very beginning of his whole gospel, he says, "Just Jesus guy is God wrapped in the flesh. So here's this woman in her shame, standing in the presence of God himself. What's he going to do? And Jesus says, hmm, nobody's condemned you, huh? She's like, no. He's like, I don't either go stop doing what you're doing that's it yeah he didn't belittle her he didn't humiliate her he didn't ask her to expand on her story he didn't lecture her he didn't scold her he invited her to something new he invited her to something better he invited her to a second chance in a new life that's the god we stand before today So if you have a story of sexual brokenness, it's the same thing. Jesus says, nobody's condemning you here. We don't allow rocks in this room, okay? We don't allow stones in here. Because we're all the woman. All of us. With one thing or another. And yet we serve a God who says, hey, hey, let's try something new. Let me invite you to something better. That's what he says. So we're going to have folks around the room to pray with you. Susie, I think, will be back there as well. Um, I'll be back there. Matt will be back there. Some of the interns will be back there. We're here to pray with you. If you want to come pray about sexual issues, let's do that. But that's not the only reason. you can, like, If you stand up and go pray, we're not going to be like, mm-hmm. That's, all right? You can pray about anything. Or You can pray about your dog dying. Or we don't know, okay? But people are back there to pray with you for whatever that is. So I'm going to move into this time of prayer. Uh, the band's going to lead us uh, uh, in a song after that. And please, come. Come pray with us. There's no stones in here. This is a safe place. There's no condemnation in here. Only love, only grace, only an invitation to something better. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much uh, for your unending grace, your unending love. You don't love us when we get it right. You just love us. And God, I know I wouldn't be standing here if it wasn't for your love, for your unconditional love. I know I wouldn't be standing here if you hadn't said, I don't condemn you either and invited me to something new. So God, I pray that everyone in this room knows this is a safe place and that in you, new life, new starts, second starts, third starts, fourth starts, fifth starts are possible. Changing the correction of our life is is possible. That's the whole story of the gospel. If you can defeat death, you can defeat anything in our life. Help us to trust that and to lean into that, Father. Thank you so much for your love and your grace. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. Let's stand, let's worship together.